welcome to the latest episode of Rounds Rant, and today I am joined by Kelly Starrett. Kelly is a CrossFit trainer, physical therapist, author, and speaker. His 2013 fitness book, Becoming a Supple Leopard, was featured on the New York Times bestselling sports book list. He is also co-founder with his wife, Juliet, of The Ready State. So first and foremost, Kelly, how are you getting on today? Well, you know, we're all in... Uh we're in the the pandemic in the lockdown, you know, and I just want to say, I really appreciate you uh, pronouncing the name correctly. (laughs) I'm a fourth, fourth, you know, it's a pretty Irish name. I'm a fourth generation kid from uh, County Cork. So thank you so much. No worries. Good to hear that there's a bit of Irish blood in you. Oh yeah. Kelly start. Come on. (laughs) Um, So, First and foremost, um, I normally just before we get into your main body of work and what you've kind of become renowned for, like you grew up in Germany and that eventually led you moving to the United States. But on your fitness journey, what intrigued me the most was, you know, what what was that moment or who was that person that kind of started you on this fitness journey that showed you a particular thing that kind of got your brain thinking, oh, I actually actually like testing my body. I like doing fitness. This could be something I could really gravitate towards. It's a really great question. You know, um, particularly in the context today where, you know, we're having to teach so many formal movement skills and there are so many other things that kids can do and access. You know, for us, sports was the thing. And it wasn't just like you were good at one sport. You were good at every sport. You had to play everything. We played everything and then every free moment was riding our mountain bikes or climbing or skiing and you know i remember one year doing five different sports and it was wasn't like a chore like it is today of course i mean i don't think you could do that today but we really you know sort of hung our hats on who was the best all-around athlete you know who could pick up the new skill the fastest and growing up in the in the really the woods of bavaria my mom was a single working professor and we were pretty kind of broke, and uh, but I had a bike, and sports were cheap, and you could, there's always a, a pickup soccer game to be had, and um, you know I do remember being at a ski racing camp in Austria, which sounds very bougie now in retrospect, mm. but uh, you know there was this uh, racing camp for kids, and um, the reigning or former World Cup champion was was doing a very technical description of, of what's happening with your foot pressure during the turn. And uh, I was 12, and I remember thinking, yeah, this is how I think. I love this. This is exactly right. And that really, for the moment for me, was when I started to appreciate the technicality. And it wasn't just about do more sports, just, you know, the sort of, I think the old model was play everything, do everything that will just take care of everything, right? That was more yeah. of everything was the model. And even today we still sort of say, well, you should be a two or three sport athlete at the least, you know, during your development phase. But that was the first time I had a glimpse behind sort of really how technical the thinking was behind the thing we were doing at high speed and intuitively. And that, that really has stuck with me. I started teaching kayaking when I was 14 to adults, whitewater kayaking. So I've been kayaking for a fair bit. And, and I started to realize sort of the underlying principles of, of teaching motor skills. And then, you know, you know, way leads to way and realizing sort of all along that, you know, I, I, I guess uh, an, an example that illustrates this well is I was um, I was a young physio student 
And I had the opportunity to go down and I could work for a coach whose name was Mike Bergner, who was an Olympic lifting coach. He lived in Southern California in San Diego. I lived in San Francisco North. And I would fly down, stay on a friend's couch, and then I would be his assistant coach for three days. Didn't get paid. I was just so stoked to be in the same room watching him coach and assisting in any way I could. And I did that many times. And I remember the first time, because I had a sort of, was developing a worldview of, of understanding the componentry to what was happening to people's mm. movements. But I remember seeing him immediately whip out a skill transfer exercise, you know, a, an assistant transfer exercise to teach a skill. And to an Olympic lifter who was competent. And I remember thinking, how am I going to ever learn 10,000 drills for this one thing? You know, he had a drill for everything. You know, he'd been coaching his whole life. And, and then I had this sort of awakening moment where I appreciated that I could actually see what the limitation was in the body that was preventing this athlete from doing this thing. And the coach saw this as a deficient skill that he was trying to minister to with another drill. And instead, I was able to kind of quickly fix the problem that gave the person access to their shape and position. And sort of this coach and I looked at each other and we were like, whoa, <laughs> you know, that, what yeah. was that? You know, all of a sudden, you know, you know, a little, I did a little rib PA, a little spring, and all of a sudden the, the athlete had a little extension, bam, and made this snatch. And it took me, you know, two minutes to make that change. And then that athlete was able to use that position. So when I started to realize, I, I began to appreciate sort of there's these two components. We've gotten really good at teaching skills and skill transfer exercises. But I realized that really we had an opportunity to take sort of what we traditionally call therapeutic exercise or, or, or mobilizations, mo restoring motion in a hip capsule, things that looked like physical therapy, but really was about restoring native range of motion. And I started calling those position transfer exercises. Like the reason what, one of the reasons we mobilize is to improve your position and shape. And, and from that day forward, I really started to hone in on the fact that, boy, we were asking people to do a lot of complex movement skills and they did not even have the range of motion to be able to get there. Hmm. And say back in that time, because now, as you said, it, the access people have, whether it's online or in books or even just at their local gyms, the knowledge is out there. It's much more accessible. But say hmm. back when you were starting out, like, was there kind of people questioning some of your methods, people around your methods? Was there an established way of going about, say, with Olympic lifting? Was this quite foreign to people at the time? Or was it kind of starting to build its way into, you know, these type of gym settings and workouts? No, uh, it's a fair question. You know, no one was mobilizing to improve position. You would go see a physio if you were hurt. And maybe you would do some foam rolling for recovery. And I'm just going to put that in loose quotation marks, right? You just <laughs> lay, down the, lay down on the ground. Like coach would be like, you stretch? You're like, mm-hmm, I stretched. Are we ready to go? You know? Uh, you know, so, you know, there was no sort of, we didn't appreciate sort of the nuance of position. And the old model consciously was, we'll train as far as we can until you break. We'll back off, rest a little bit, train a little further, and get further next time. That was the established model, which sounds crazy to say, but really was typical. And I actually even had to, when I first, you know, whipped out, you know, a, uh, a Brian Mulligan slash, so basically it was a, 
um, uh, what we call it a hip quadrant mobilization, really working on the hip capsule, trying to restore this rotation window of the hip. And I remember it was someone was in the therapy clinic for a shoulder problem, but uh, he was also playing jujitsu at the time. And we were talking about guard and he was like, you know, and I was, I pulled up his knee and it was stuck at like 90. And I was like, well, how do you even get into guard, bro? You know what I mean? Like you can't even, you can't even do this. Like, what are we even talking about? So I was like, Hey, on a second. So I whipped out my belt and I just opened his hips up and, uh, and he didn't have any pain in his hips, didn't have any pathology in his hips, just didn't have access to the position for whatever reason, got stiff. What, who knows? Right. We're, We're agnostic about the reasons why people can't achieve their positions. but he came back the next day and was like, what the hell was that? You know, he's like, I was able to wrap my head, my knees around guys' necks and, you know, I crushed them. And I was like, hmm. You know, and at the time, um, what I realized is I was uh, a young physio and people still were not squatting and hinging for rehab exercise. Those things were not rehab Mm -hmm. exercises. It was short arc quads and clamshells, really low exercise. And I, I, when I first really, you know, I opened the gym my second year of physio school. So we've been into, we've had a gym for 16 years now. And, um, you know, the rehab exercise looked very different than how we were training with kettlebells, Olympic lifting, powerlift, running gymnastics. It just was not the same language at all. And I really struggled to reconcile sort of this correlate parallel rehab language. Like, you know, we're, we don't say push up. We we have like a push up plus kind of thing that we do. And, you know, the language of strength and conditioning and movement. I mean, I have taught on every p- continent except Antarctica. And guess what? Everyone knows what a push up <laughs> is. Everyone knows what a squat looks like. You know what I mean? If I say push yeah. up, it's a universal language. So what I really felt like was we had this really powerful diagnostic tool called movement, which every person did. And it wasn't, you know some nebulous, you know, you know, free form, you solve this movement problem, you're a unique snowflake. You, the, all the textbooks, everyone says the shoulder should be able to do this. And it turns out that when you do these formal movements, you can see whether the shoulder can do this or not. Put two dumbbells over your head. Are your elbows bent? What the hell? You know, why can't you hold, why can't you express full range of motion? So at the same time I was in physio school, I started to, you know, uh, open this gym and I was suddenly seeing, it was like I had an x-ray vision and I could fix problems and identify problems. And it wasn't about pain or no pain. I quickly understood that because, you know, what we had traditionally says, if you have pain, that's a medical problem. I'm like, okay, mm. well, great. Well, I'm, I'm, a, I'm an expert in pain now because I'm a physio, but I also started asking people like, do you have pain? And everyone was training with pain. So they clearly weren't injured. It clearly wasn't a medical problem. And if you've ever played on any pitch in your life, chances are something hurts during sport, right? It's the nature of sport. I mean, you would get a talk from our coach at the beginning of the season, like, all right, kids, you're going to hurt for the next six months. Just suck it up, you know? And uh, so meanwhile, we really started to focus on restoring position so that people could achieve better shapes and better technique right? The technique from all of these movement traditions turns out to be pretty universal because people have figured out what the cues are to have the best expression of human physiology. Like what's the best expression of running technique? Why do we run? What does everyone coach running? They might use a different set of cues, 
but all the Olympians run the same way, right? There's not, no one sh- shows up at the line and does some kind of crazy gallop. They run the same way, even though they train different with, with different methodologies. And so it was at that moment where we realized, let's eject the conversation about pain, no pain. Let's start talking about the reason we do this is to improve position, improve efficiency, improve mechanics, improve output and wattage. And we could test that. And we did. And that was really the first time I started to overlay the set of tools of mobilizations, which are really well-developed, but switching them into, you know, having a person be able to do it themselves and to remove the physio from the conversation. That was really a, a gigantic kind of leap when we started to conjoin positional quality with the training experience. Hmm. Yeah, no interesting points there. And you're saying there that you've had your gym now for a large amount of time. And like, I suppose this is a two-parted question. The first part is obviously like when that opened, was it your normal type of gym? Did you want it to stand out from the rest? And then I suppose leading on from that, now your main focus tends to be CrossFit training. And as you said, the mobility and all that comes with it, but with that, do you feel that CrossFit is still maybe the the main or the best way to train in regards to performance, functionality, and all that comes with it? Okay, so let's unpack that. Uh, yeah, sorry, I threw a lot yeah. at you. No, so I think it's it's hard to forget that, or it's easy to forget that when we started our gym, you know, places like Rogue Fitness weren't around. You know, it was difficult to buy gymnastics rings. Olympic lifting bars were like Ilico, you know, you know, works in good luck. There are a thousand bucks a piece, right? Yeah. Um, you know, uh, gyms either looked like you either grew up in a, a training hall or you grew up in with power rack center in a university or you went to, you know, 24 hour fitness. I mean, those were your options, right? <clears throat> And I think what was interesting and, and important about CrossFit early on was here we had an open source model that said, hey, let's become competent in Olympic lifting. Let's be competent at basic barbell training, you know, deadlifts, presses, right, front squat, back squat. And then let's also really start looking at conditioning, but let's apply conditioning to some time domains. So instead of just do a bunch of work. And I had plenty of coaches who just made me do a bunch of work. And then yeah. when, when I was when they were satisfied, I was done, right? Instead of saying, here's our intention, we're doing these movements. And so in the beginning, you know, there was, you know, clearly five by five had been around for a minute, you know, but the we really borrowed a lot from, you know, sort of our traditional strength and conditioning models, which really separated. And I would say, you know, honestly, most strength coaches at places are really good at strength and real crap at conditioning. You know, they don't know how mm. to train. So then you go into the triathlon, swim, run, bike world, paddling. Everyone is really good at conditioning and training these metabolic pathways and real crap at movement and strength, right? And, um, yeah. you know, we basically were training everyone like American football players or rugby athletes, right? That's, that's, that was our, our basic template for a long time because those guys really did a lot. Unless you were a track and field athlete, then, you know, you grew up Olympic lifting as part of your ability to throw the ball. So, you know, th- throw the discus. So here we are now. And what I'll say is it's important to appreciate that we've come a long way in 15 years. 
you know, I think when we started our project of just putting what we knew on the web 10 years ago, YouTube was barely a thing. The iPhone didn't have a video camera. I think people have forgotten, you know, the resources that have become, you know, it's an embarrassment of riches today, what you can access. I mean, I watch more Chinese weightlifting videos than you can shake a stick at versus <laughs> some smuggled VHS from some Chinese lifting camp. No one knows what's going on, right? We can watch yeah. Lasha lift all the time. So, um, you know, what's really amazing is that we have these incredible portals and transparency into how people are, are coaching and training right now, which is, which is, can be remarkable and it can be overwhelming. So if we, if we look at sort of the advancement now, what I think we have to appreciate for sport, you know, if I have athletes and, and we don't, we have a CrossFit gym, but we train everyone. So we have athletes from all the different sports there. We have Olympians there and their training all looks different, except everyone hinges. Everyone is jumping. Everyone's in a split position. Everyone puts their arms over their heads, right? The, our tool selection is diversified, but positions are not diversified. And what I'll say is when we look at an athlete in season, the only goal we have is to make that athlete better at their sport in the season. That's the only, that's mm. how we measure our success. Did you, did you race faster? Were you able to recover more quickly? You know, were you, did we prevent that hip from getting sore on the bike? Right. That's the goal. That's the only goal. But as soon as the season's over, we switch into sports preparation training, which is looking a little bit more holistically, filling in gaps and holes. Like there are some things we just won't care about as much when, well, you know, our swimmers are in the middle of their competitive season as when they're in their sports preparation training. But sports preparation is also about coordination and skill. And Franz Bosch is doing a fantastic job of really appreciating, for example, the ability of uh, the strength conditioning and coordination coach around making more efficient people, not just did you get stronger, did you get faster, right? Because the old model was, well, you know, let's just get you super strong. Well, what does that mean? How strong do you need to be to be super strong? I mean, four times body weight, six times body weight. What What is the right metric there? And yeah. Then on the other side, I would say is that CrossFit is classic GPP. And for an average population, it's pretty darn good. General physical preparedness around exposure to different move, energy pathways, movement fluency, skills. But the problem with GPP is it tends to be very recursive. I do pull-ups so I can do pull-ups so I can have more pull-ups. It also doesn't necessarily appreciate the, the transference of mechanics. So I can have people who can do a lot of work in really bad positions. And by the way, that is not the way that you win in any sport at all, which is so yeah. technical. Why do we drill? So to the extent that we can take the, the bones of CrossFit and wrap it up and make it you know, sports preparation training, then what you'd see is our training looks awfully like what everyone else is doing on the planet. Yeah, no, well said. And I'd, <clears throat> I came from a a background growing up, and you mentioned there rugby was the big, big sport here. And a lot of the fellow classmates I had who went on to play at you know, professional level and still do. And you were saying there that's kind of a, during season and still to this day there all about maintenance, maintenance, and then they go into that preseason mode of build up the strength, and it's quite formulatic. 
formulated, I should say, in that, that it's the same every single year. And what I suppose I'm getting at here is, like when you say are working with an athlete or if you're working with your Joe average guy or girl who comes into the gym, is there any kind of set way to kind of whether it's to do with an Olympic lift, whether it's to do with something to do with mobility, is there anything that kind of fits all in one for just fit for purpose purpose for someone who could be 20 years of age and one could be 50 or is it very much I need to have a look at this individual and depending on how that individual is, how big they are, how tall they are, what their age is, what their flexibility is like, I have to adapt to that or is there a kind of a method that suits all in that? Um, well, that's a great question, and I, I, I appreciate that. Um, you know, the way to think about this is: look, we're squatting today. You need to squat. That's what we're doing. So, what does your squat look like? Well, you know, you're super extension sensitive, have history of a spondy, so maybe we're going to front squat today, right? Hmm. You don't have you have horrible compensation mechanics. You when you get below parallel, you butt wink, your feet turn out, your knees come in, right? Your elbows flare, your neck cranks back looks like crap squatting. So we're going to squat into your available ranges. Oh, you're injured? Guess what? We're doing really slow tempo squats to a box well above parallel, and then we're going to smoke you on the conditioning. So, you know, to the extent that everyone has different needs, what person doesn't need to flex their hip and train hip flexion? You know, and there's a lot of ways to do that from squatting to trap bar deadlifts to heavy step ups, right? There's a lot of different things. The key here is being able to identify compensation. So when an athlete is working around a problem because they're either unskilled, don't know how to do it, or they don't simply have the range of motion, then what you're going to see is that they will solve the problem. So if I say, hey, I need you to squat to this depth, guess what I'm going to get from any athlete? The thing that I ask for, right? And so if all I value is going up and down, and putting another kilo on the bar, my athletes are going to go up and down and put another kilo on the bar, no matter what. What we want to do is begin to say, well, you know, these are skills that we're training, and we're it's deep motor learning. And what I may be doing is making my athletes worse at their sports. And I can say that around mechanics. So if you're, you know, swinging kettlebells and squatting with your feet turned out thirty degrees. When you're in the scrum and your feet are turned out 30 degrees, you can get your ass kicked. When you're running down the pitch and your feet are turned out like Donald Duck and you're sprinting <laughs> and you go to cut, you're going to be slow, right? So the question is, what am I training? What am I reinforcing? You know, and what we see is that as soon as I ask an athlete to get into a split stance or step up on a box, their feet go straight again. I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. You have to choose what you want you to be teaching your body, right? If the point is to be able to explode and jump the highest – if I turn your feet out to your squat position, you're not going to jump the highest in that position. So it turns out a lot of the things that we're seeing are compensation. It's a movement solution. I'm going around a problem. So what we want to make sure is that we can identify what those signatures of compensation are for movements. What is What does it compensated movement look like when the shoulder is coming down in the bench press? What does that look like? Elbows flare. Shoulder translates forward. Person squirms around on the ball right on the bench. So we can identify those because those are the, the things that we're coaching 
out of anyway, right? So it turns out that most of us are pretty competent. If you jump and land and your knees slam together and your arch collapses, I'm like, "Mm," you know, you may or may not ever get hurt there, but that's a crappy position to generate force in, right? And how do Mm -hmm. I know? Because let's go over to the force plate and I'll show you what I'm talking about, right? I mean, you're going to get your your ass handed to you by this 14-year-old girl who's training in my gym who's just efficient and more efficient than you are. And you might be able to out-muscle her for three reps, but not for 10 reps. So, you know, the, the key here is what we want to make sure is that we can identify these minimums. So, you know, I was having a conversation with a good friend named uh, Stuart McMillan, who is the CEO of Altus, head track and field coach there, Olympic track and field. And he was saying, you know, I, my sprinters only need zero dorsiflexion. That's it. That's what they need to do to do their job. I'm like, great. I totally agree. And he's like, what you do? And I was like, yep. <laughs> they just need to have zero dorsiflexion. I said, but how do you know when they don't? And he was like, uh, I'm like, you test it every day? Because your range of motion is certainly a moving target, right? Yeah. And, uh, and I was like, well, does he need more than that to squat down? You know, do you do any other training but running, sprinting? He's like, yeah, of course. You know, and I'm like, well, does he have to express more than zero degrees dorsiflexion anytime, which would mean the knee needs to come forward some, right? And he was like, well, yes. And I was like, okay, so he needs enough dorsiflexion to do his sport and not compensate in training. And then I was, you know, then you can start to see that he has a set of ideals where he can drop in his laser vision because he's a great coach and see, hey, I have a running problem. I know what that looks like. And then I can minister to the lack of range of motion if that's the limiting factor or if the athlete just can't do what I'm asking them to do. But our experience is when we restore native range of motion, and again, it's enough, enough to do what you need to do, right? We all say that you should have between 20 and 30 degrees of dorsiflexion. And when the leg is locked out, you should have 10 degrees of dorsiflexion. But guess what? Most people do not. And they still seem to play sports really well. But our experience is that when we start focusing on being able to identify and limit compensation and training, and then we restore native range of motion to the person, then they're much easily coached and they access those positions instantaneously in their native technique. It's like you just give someone a battery, a fresh battery in their machine. The the, the machine knows how to use the battery. Yeah. And it's kind of interesting there that you you bring up the whole topic of compensation and there's always a weakness. If you're trying to get around that bit of compensation there's you need to be able to identify it and as a a man who had huge issues with my knee i tore my lcl three or four times and it took took me about a year i I went a full year without deadlift and squatting and i'd be quite active in the gym and it's only now recently in the last eight nine ten months but was i you mentioned there with squatting butt winking knees turned out etc like is there, as you said, like a, in perfect context and if you have the perfect athlete, because you talked about it a lot on your book, Becoming a Supple Leopard, about the squat and what's considered good, what isn't in your opinion. But like when you look at the debate of whether having your feet straight or your feet pointed out at a bit of an angle, like where do you, where do you view the squat right now? What do you like to see what are the fundamental steps you like to see your athletes or someone in your gym doing correctly in order for you to be saying, you know, that's, that's a good squat to me. Well, the, the real question is what's my intent. If my intent is just to improve your fitness, you can turn your feet out, 
but don't you dare collapse your arch. And what you're going to see is that people are turning their feet out. And also they don't even, they can't weight the foot evenly. They're on the back of their heels. They've turned their quads off. Their arches are collapsed, but you can't see them because you're wearing shoes. Hmm. Right. So one of the things I'll say is, well, if you're trying to translate this to biking or let's say skiing, your feet are pretty straight in those positions. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Can you imagine riding your bike in the Tour de France with your feet turned out? It's really weird. So, <laughs> you know, if I ask you to do a standing broad jump and your feet are straight, you've answered the question for me, right? You know, the way we do one thing is the way we do everything. We play like we practice. I've heard that before, right? So what's really interesting then is that this isn't even a conversation about opinion. This is a conversation about facts. So if I turn your feet out to 30 degrees and have you adopt a squat stance, it's easy to get there. But now I'm going to hold your, I'm going to make you resist your knees. I'm going to try to pull your knees towards each other and I want you to resist. And what you'll see is you're really weak. I have taken the strongest man, the world record in, in powerlifting at a super heavy weight and just broken his knees down, turn his feet out, collapse his knees, feet straight, straighter between under kind of 12 degrees. And I can't budge him. He's, he's rock solid. Turn him out beyond a little window where he starts to lose positional capacity. Right. And what we see is, is that we know if you bench with your arms flared out, right? Your elbows flared. You're not a great bencher. You can't bench a lot in that position. Okay. So why is that different than your hip? There's a position where you're going to generate more force. Let's train in those positions. But what you're telling me is I don't have any ankle range of motion. I don't even have full hip flexion. And I certainly don't have any hip rotation and flexion. So my squat is obviously the best. This is the best technique. And I'm like, that's the only position you can squat it, right? You don't even have choice. What we're trying to do is put our, give our athletes choice. So the only thing that should change relative to your squat and my squat is how far forward my torso is leaning, how wide my feet are apart, you know, what the shin angle is. That's why we don't coach those things. We end up coaching foot pressure. If the athlete can feel and we're trying to press through the whole foot, not just the heels, not just the inside toe, heels up off the ground, then all of a sudden the athlete finds this position and uses their mechanics to solve the problem. And we all have different length femurs and different length pelvises, but it doesn't mean that you know, you've got to turn your feet out. That's because you're going around a problem. Or someone said to you early on, turn your feet out. And you're like, okay. So you turned your feet out and you never asked why. If you, I put a monster walk, like a monster band on your knees and had you do those sidewalks, you know, you yeah. ever seen that before? I have. I've done them. They're not, uh, not too, but, not too okay. easy. Why would you do them with your feet straight? Hmm. Hmm, because you're weak, weak sauce with your feet turned out. Go ahead and next time you do the monster walks, just turn your feet out. So what's interesting then is that we're basically saying, hey, I see that you don't even have full access to your position, and but let's go ahead and train you anyway. That works. But it doesn't turns out it doesn't translate really well to as well as it could. And that means we're leaving potential on the table. So if you come into our gym, we're gonna squat today. We're gonna put you into the best position that's available to you in this moment, right? And then we're also gonna say, hey, let's conjoin the diagnostic tool with the stimulus. So if we're squatting, squatting isn't just about becoming stronger, it's about becoming more coordinated, and it's about restoring position, and it's about diagnostics. And again, we already have this perfect diagnostic problem. You know, it's all I need to do is watch you move in my gym and I understand where your limitations are and where you have hidden reservoirs of potential. 
Yeah, no, well said. I can certainly relate to a, a good bit of that information, for better or worse, I should say, as well. And and yeah. I'll say that it's irrefutable. I'll show you what it looks like on the force plate. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like if the goal is to put ground reaction force or to create force and or height or power, then what you're saying is I prefer a weaker position. And now I'm like, great. My teams do not prefer weaker positions. We'll play you anytime you want. Mm. Yeah, no, I get you. And one of the one of the other things which is quite it's it's actually even topic of debate amongst me and my fellow friends because like yourself we're currently on lockdown but people want to get out and exercise whether that's at home or else go for runs and that kind of leads me on to the next part of us and you've spoken huge amounts in your books or in other podcasts or some of your public speaking events about like a lot of people I know have now suddenly taken up long distance running. And it's one thing <laughs> that it's one thing I've I've tried and I've tried more or less every type of weight training or cardio training from CrossFit to F forty five, strongman, the weight training like a bodybuilder, splits, all that. And the one thing I've never been able to crack is the long distance running because after a, k- a kilometer, maybe one point five suddenly I'd be like, right, my knee's actually kind of sore. My shins are beginning to kill me. My lower back is starting to flare up. Why <laughs> Why is this happening when right. I can go through, you know, a 60-minute workout or a really tough CrossFit workout and be able to do it again the next day? Like, when you think of lower back issues with running and knees, and I'm sure you get it a huge amount of times from 20-year-olds up to 60, 70-year-olds, like – is does genetics just play a massive part in this or is it very much fundamentally you need to prep your own body to be able to do that type of long distance running where you can battle through the pain and then it'll get to the stage where you'd be looking around going this is a piece of cake and doing several kilometers um, per day or throughout the week well let's let's break that down first of all if you were doing any other training and things started to hurt you'd just be like ah suck it up no, you'd be like, something's wrong, right? I mean, your back yeah. doesn't, shouldn't hurt when you squat, when you jump, when you kettlebell swing. So if you're feeling discomfort while you're running, you're getting cues about biomechanics that aren't very efficient, right? That's a really important – doesn't mean you're getting injured at all. It means that your brain is saying, hey, I, I'm not, I don't know how to handle these ground reaction forces come through the system. So one of the things that's really interesting now is that we look at the skill, like the bench press is one of the most technical things we teach. You know, and I'm not obsessed mm-hmm. with the bench press. I'm just using it as an example because everyone can appreciate it. When's the last time you spent as much time watching running technique and talking about running technique as you did Olympic lifting technique? You don't. You just kind of take it for granted because everyone yeah. can run, right? Because it's one of the, the shapes, one of the skills of a human being. It turns out modern athletes really don't have good hip extension and they so you may not even have the range of motion to be able to express good running mechanics and so you're doing compensated running mechanics but because you can buffer it for you know hundreds of steps it doesn't really matter until it does running should be effortless and feel good and one of the things that we do then is we try to run running. If you're at home and you're picking up running again, I'm going to change your life right now and have you get something called the Tempo app, T-E-M-P-O. It's just a metronome app for your phone. Okay. And I want you to set it at 94. So your right foot is going to contact 94, which is, looks sounds like this. Beep, 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 beep. That's 94. Okay. Right? 
and what you'll see is beep, 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 that's 87. <laughs> and <laughs> what I can tell you unequivocally is that you are not running, you're plotting. And if you are actually running, your cadence needs to be above 90 for a single leg touching the ground. Otherwise, you're not able to actually capture the elastic spring energy of the connective tissue, of the fascia, of the heel cord. That heel cord is so efficient that it can return 80% of your of stored energy back. 80% of the energy loaded into your calf gets returned. And what's a re remarkable about that is that below 80, below 90, excuse me, you do not return stored energy. You leak it all out and you have to reconstitute it like a muscle, you know, like running in sand. It's one of the reasons it's so difficult, right? Is that you've just, you've lost the elastic spring. So one of the things that we're seeing is that if we up everyone's cadence, and by the way, Kipchoge ran the two hour marathon at 96, just so we're clear with his mouth shut at 96 cadence. I think you probably won't be able to run at a 96 cadence for a kilometer. You're gonna realize that you are sucky and slow and not springy and, and not quick. We're actually making you a worse athlete. So by constraining your stride rate, you're gonna see that your stride shortens. You have to land a little bit more effectively. You have to pull off more effectively. And if you watch children run, no child runs under 90. They all run above 90 because in order for them to run, they have to use their springiness. They can't use their muscular power. And what's happened, for example, is if you get on the assault bike, right, the, the air hand bike, and you're going back and forth, your arms and legs, you can't even hit 90 RPMs. You're at 60 RPM, 66, 67, 68. And what you're seeing is that you're actually spending a lot of your cardio time in these low revolution positions. So we do, we love training on the, the bike, the, the spin bike. Nick Gill of the All Blacks uses the, the Watt bike a ton for conditioning. Why? Because it's high physiology, low skill. His, his kids need less, you know, less loading sometimes through the nervous system. They just need to get some dumb work in, right? And one of the things that you can see is that if you can't maintain cadence at 95 above, you're seeing that you are actually really sucky and that what you're, reserve, you're doing is putting all of the energy system right on the muscle, not on the springiness, not on the cardiorespiratory demand. So when we start adding skill back into running, actually running becomes very enjoyable because it becomes hyper-technical. The other thing I'd recommend, and you know, in this, this time of uh, – of you know cholera this time of real real travesty is yeah. you can go out and run barefoot go run barefoot and if you're afraid to run barefoot for 400 meters you have big problems right and i'm not talking about running i'm just talking about jogging but see if you can go out and hit that 90 to 94 cadence barefoot and you're going to see that you do not heel strike you land quietly you're hyper efficient you don't go up and down you get all this feedback so what's happened is we've taken our trainers these two centimeter cushion hell shoes right we prod along with you know we don't have range of motion can't extend your hip your feet are weak your ankles suck right you're not springy and then your body says no, i don't like this and you're like yeah this running sucks and i'm like yeah that, it does suck the way you're running right now doesn't feel good and i guess what i believe you so, you know, when you start to dial these other pieces in, what you see is, hey, we can put the skill back into running and do running drills just the way we can something any other any other skill or any other opportunity. And that gives us real 
chance to develop running and see it not just as, okay, I'm going to eat this bowl of kale now, and then I'm going to eat two bowls of kale. And then I'm going to, you know, it just, it just doesn't have to be that way. Mm. Yeah, well, no, I've taken taken note there of the barefoot uh, challenge, so to speak, and then also that app, and see see how I get on. And like with that kind of like, I'm I'm just thinking now of just you've obviously written or wrote uh, many books yourself. Like there was one ready to run, which I'm sure is highly relatable to what you just talked about. We've already mentioned becoming a supple leopard as well, and another one that intrigued me a lot, and it's only kind of come to my attention and say when I was younger I remember it was my final year in school that becoming a supple leopard came out and a few of the lads even on my rugby team were talking about it and I remember the days of reading abstracts and stuff like that from it and now I've kind of gravitated towards now since I've properly started the nine to five slog as many people would call it that your book uh, Deskbound is all about the pros and cons of the work and life and sitting at a desk for long periods. So like I was just wondering even personally, but then also the many people who work um, that listen to this would be intrigued as well. Like you'd, you'd sometimes recommend that for every 30 minutes of sitting down, you'd nearly need to do maybe four minutes of actual mobility to counteract that. And as a man who sits at a desk for several hours a day, is this going to cause me, you know, long-term negative effects to my muscles and bones if I'm not kind of wary of it and keep on top of it? So the real thing is if let's pan back and look, take the 30,000 foot view of who we are as human animals, right? One of the things that is crucial, we are anti-fragile systems, which means that when you actually load us and challenge us, we get better. Like we, you have to have that input into the human. That's, that's the way it works. So we will use this example um, of an orca whale, like a big killer whale in captivity. And if you put an orca whale in captivity, eventually the fin will fold over, the big dorsal fin. And we don't see it in the wild as much. Sometimes it happens, but it's not, it's not, a, it's not a function of the wild. And what ends up happening is that when you put the orca in captivity, that orca no longer is loading the fin. It doesn't fight. It doesn't swim. It doesn't play. It doesn't do orca stuff. It kind of stays in this little cage and it spends its time with the surface, right? It's really yeah. weird. So not, not only is, does it, if you're not loading the fin, but you're also not, you're exposing the fin to a whole new set of challenges or just positions that doesn't, normally it's not in all the time. And especially not in all the time in that weak state it can buffer it for a while. So that's your body. <laughs> The central idea of the body is Wolf's Law, which is, you know, Julius Wolf, German, uh, early 1800s. Like he said, use it or lose it around bones. If you loaded bones, they got stronger. You stopped loading bones, they got weaker. And what we know is now the principle is called mechanotransduction, which means if you want actual loading, if you want the tissues to express themselves of the body at a cellular level, you have to use them. So if you want to have a strong Achilles tendon, you have to use the Achilles. And what does the Achilles do? It lengthens, it shortens, and it holds these isometrics. So if you're not exposing the Achilles to lengthening, shortening, loading, and isometrics, it's not really going to be an Achilles. Do you follow? Mm, yeah, I'll get you. So now what we can begin to say is, well, what is essential for the human being? Well, one of the things that's essential for the human being is movement. So 
the desk isn't a problem. What is a problem is not moving. And if you suddenly start spending time in a seated position, for us, we can be very clear and define what sedentary versus non-sedentary is. So if you can get your body to burn enough calories to rise above what we call one and a half metabolic equivalents, if you've never heard met before, if you go into some old weight gym, you you get on the Stairmaster or Stair Stepper and there's a... uh, a choice about Mets. I want to burn Mets, right? And you're always like, what the hell is a Met? Well, it turns out one and a half. If you're sitting down, you're basically at one and a half metabolic equivalents or under. And if you stand up or lean against a bar stool or do anything where you have to use more muscles, you're going to end up being above one and a half metabolic equivalents. And the reason that's important is that one and a half turns out to be the threshold where you're hormonally start to do very strange things. You, that's the only time we should be at one and a half is really when we're sleeping at night or under, right? We're just laying there or we're taking a quick break. The rest of the time we should sort of be in constant motion. And that doesn't mean activity, it just means motion. So we call this non-exercise activity. And Harvard defines sedentary lifestyle as sitting or spending more than six hours a day in that one and a half metabolic equivalence. And what you can see is under that one and a half metabolic equivalence. And so you can see quickly that it's easy to rack up six hours of not really moving around, which means it doesn't matter what you're doing. You're sedentary. And when you're like, why I'll exercise. I'm like, well, did you get 60 minutes of cardio aerobic training every day, seven days a week to overcome that? The answer is no. You probably did it three or four days a week, maybe. And Mm -hmm. that's like saying, well, you know why I, I exercise so I can eat this pizza. Really, like, really? That's the reason you exercise? So you can just eat pizza? All right. Well, good luck because you're going to eat that pizza on days you don't exercise. And all of a sudden, you're, you're seeing it's really strange. We're doing things that we're not meant to do. So when we're working, when we're sitting at the desk, when I say – didn't say mobility work. What I said is you need to move. And what I'd like you to do is try to think about all those different ways you can just get more movement in. And movement counts as anything that's not sitting in a chair. So getting up and down off the ground, if you're able to work at home right now on the ground, sit on the ground, use your coffee table, use your chair, turn a chair around, put your laptop there, just sit on the ground. You're going to have to get up and down to pee. You're going to have to fidget because you're going to get achy. You're going to have to get some tea, right? All of a sudden you you have all this movement built into your life instead of reminding yourself, I got to get up from my desk every 20 minutes, right? That's, that just yeah. is a, a silly thing. And the real interesting is, you know, you, Again, this isn't a conversation about pain or no pain. Will I hurt myself? It's a conversation that eventually your tissues are going to become that orca. So when you go out to the pitch, you go to the gym, and your orca fin is weak and starting to fold over, it's not going to do or be able to handle the loading you want to throw at it, right? And you may not even be able to put your arms over your head or extend your hip. Why? Because you have been training your hip to stay in a flexed position all the time. And so if you need to extend your hip, so all of a sudden we start to see loss of range of motion, which is shorthand for I can't get into the shapes required for sport or for training for sport. And I don't care what you think. That's one or zero, yes or no. And the more you sit and the more you don't move or at least restore your body, then that's going to be a problem. So what we want to appreciate is this training that we're doing now is even more important because we all work at the computer. We all have to commute. We all have to ride the bus. So I have to make sure that I'm 
doing when I am training, I'm trying to restore my positions and positional competency is just as important as changing a metabolic pathway or using, you know, my muscles to get stronger. We also are using that coordination training, the restoration of position as part of the training. And that's what's really crucial because all of a sudden you'll realize you, you don't have access to something. It's like it was this, you know, your ice cream slowly melted and all of a sudden you have no ice cream. You know, and what we want people to realize is, hey, I, I want us to appreciate that we're all going to be 110 years old. You, you're going to be 100. I have three aunties who are uh, a grandma and two aunties who are over 100 in my life right now. So I, I have three living family members who are 100 years old. And that means that there's a good chance I'm going to be 90 to 100 years old because we're going to be there. So what does it look like to be 40, 50, 60, 70, 80? You know, we want to make sure that you can get up and down off the ground, keep kicking ass, playing. But we've all been playing a very, very short game, you know? Yeah. And I suppose just like being a bit more with kind of the current situation we all face and i'll definitely take one or two of those pointers on when i uh have to work from home on monday morning about that's not right sitting at the desk maybe stand up or as you said even just sit down on the floor um, do as much just change it up your job yeah. is just to change it up if you need to set an alarm to change it up change your position every 20 minutes all right i sat at the table now i'm gonna sit at the I'm gonna stand at the, the counter with some boxes and now i'm gonna work on the floor and you know what we're seeing right now is that we know that People should move somewhere between eight and twelve to fourteen thousand steps a day, right? Mm. That's 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 enough to decongest and load the feet, load the Achilles, load the hips, right? Load the spine. Like that really is important. And what we're seeing right now is if you put your phone in your pocket and walked around all day, it'll count your steps. And what you're seeing is what we're noticing is that our friends are walking two thousand steps a day or less. They're just not moving. Yeah. Which is um, not what you want to be doing, but well, like, and and the the let me sorry to interrupt, but the key here is we want to come out intact of this thing. We want to come out and be able to go back up. The number one predictor of musculoskeletal injury in sport is changes in volume. So if I go from I have an athlete who goes really high volume training, spread, turns an ankle, no one's fault, just happens in sport. Volume train drops off, come back up to high volume, boom, you're likely to get injured in those changes of volume. So guess what we're about to have? We're about to experience the biggest change in training volume of all time. Guess all the musculoskeletal injuries are going to pop up immensely. Yeah, no, and that's that's why I remember when I visited uh, a professional rugby club there two years ago, they had a huge record amount of injuries, which ties into a point you just made where – in the first three weeks of the season, the competitive season, they got absolutely hammered with injuries while they hadn't had a single one in the preseason stage. So that's probably, you know, relatable into the sense that people are coming out of this or when we do come out of this obviously terrible situation with the coronavirus, that people need to be able to adapt back to their hectic lifestyles or fitness lifestyles, or if you are a pro athlete, to be able to, you know, continue on and be still at somewhat the same level rather than as you pointed out, potentially face injuries and whatnot. And I suppose related to, and just the last question or two, Kelly, before I let you go, with, and I, I suppose it would be important to talk about it considering it's all we see and hear at the moment is the coronavirus or COVID-19. Like with yourself, um, considering, 
you know, you're, I see here you're doing some online courses, mobility classes and stuff like that. But say when this does subside, whenever that is, whether it's in several weeks, several months, a year, who knows, do you feel like this could reshape kind of the fitness industry in certain elements? Like when you think of, say, a simple CrossFit class, like about five days before the lockdown here, I was in a CrossFit class surrounded by 20, 25 people. Do you think fitness standards the way of fitness classes or even how fitness is presented could change for better or worse because of this who uh we'll see (laughs) i think you're you're, you know we'll we'll need to keep some space because i think when we turn this thing back on i mean we're you know our gym is closed it's been closed for now for three weeks Mm. and uh you know we're trying to keep our staff you know, employed, we're doing the best we can. We're supporting our members with online programming and classes. And I think two things, one is that people will appreciate the value of a trainer and a coach, you know, we're, and part of the reason training is so important is that it's, it's the tribe and our community, it's our training group. And so I think people will be keen to get back to that and more than they realize, you know, um, you know, I hope, I think we've just come through something we call peak fitness, which is the chaos and bullshit that was on the internet full of fitnessing. Like it's yeah. very confusing for the person and the, the competing sort of gimmickry and crap. You know, you know what's not a gimmick? Front squatting and running, you know, and uh, no, it's not a gimmick, you know, deadlifting and pull-ups, you know, like running, running ladders isn't a gimmick. And there's so much gimmicks that have moved us away from just the essentials and confused, frankly, being really competent in the gym or looking good naked for performance. And that's not it. Training was always about going outside and training for something. You know, the idea was that we were trying to train for sport, we, but we took our, we got sucked into this, this performance thing. We're arguing about, you know, our blueberry is dangerous to eat and you should only eat yeah. meat. And, you know, it's, that's kind of crazy. And there are a lot of us who have experienced the gym and CrossFit and really enjoyed that style of training. But then all of a sudden we're like, well, that's the best way to become an athlete. And I'm like, no, that's the best way to do GPP so that you can go be an athlete. And I hope that what ends up happening is maybe we have discoupled from our fetishization of the gym and we're getting back to what was really important, which was going to play, you know, preparing myself to go play pickup footy or, you know, throwing the ball with my kids or skiing or climbing or biking or something that you want to do instead of just recursive dream chaining, because that's a, you know, I mean, we should squat, but squatting isn't a sport, you know, it's not, it's a really Mm. weird sport, you know, (laughs) notice that in Olympic lifting and in powerlifting, and I'm not trying to, you know, anger the powerlifters because I love my powerlifters, but but they have all these really – they argue a ton about what the correct depth is for your federation. Was that squat legitimate or not, right? Olympic lifting is put this thing over your head. Don't don't bend your arms. You know what I mean? Hmm. Like it's one or zero, right? Did you get it over your head or not? And, um, you know, gymnastics – or you know, where we run, it's about ultimately not – you don't get a style point. It's like how fast did you get there? And so – what I want to appreciate once again is this that we're we can hopefully get through some of the noise 
we can get through some of the confusion of, well, this girl is in her bikini on the internet lifting. She has 17 million followers. You know, there was, there was a lot of that happening. And I hope that that kind of booty call, you know, hooking for lack of a better word, you know, some of that Mm -hmm. stuff goes away because I think that stuff was really confusing, you know, and, and really, did it make us better at this? So uh, maybe we can simplify a little bit. Maybe we can all appreciate that we should be getting out, throwing the frisbee around a little more, right? Kicking the soccer ball with our kids. But uh, you know, whatever's good to you. If you just, if you're, what's important is looking good naked. Well, I'm sure you can figure that out. <laughs> yeah, and just one of the last things here, Kelly. Um, just before the quick fire round, and I'll let you go. Enjoy the rest of your day. Um. Like, obviously now, and I see even on the Ready State website with yourself, like you have a lot of stuff will be virtual, it'll be online. I see you've got your own, like, mobility and coaching classes and stuff that can be tailored towards certain people. But say for the, like, the whole world nearly that's been affected by it with people stuck at home, like what just from a basic point of view, like what are some of the best things or exercises or things that you could suggest someone to try and do at home, whether it's fitness related or not? Yeah. Well, you know, I don't know if this is the time to become fit, right. Or to change, like go on a diet. I think we're under a lot of stress. Hmm. I think it's about getting back to principles. So let me leave you with a couple ideas. One, you need to move more during the day. If you're at home, and sometimes it's difficult. Uh, just in the England, I saw a guy ran a marathon in his backyard. Did you see that? <laughs> no, I didn't. He had like a three or four meter patch in his backyard, and he ran a marathon. It took him five and a half hours. He just changed corners, changed direction. And I was like, that is so badass and crazy. I love it. I loved everything about it, right? Yeah, brilliant. But that's ideas that we can actually we just do control what you can control. My goal is I'm not going to – I may not be able to max out, but I'm going to get more than yesterday, and I'm gonna, just going to move as much as I can. Easy. Second, we have the first time in the history of the world to control our sleep. Let's control our sleep. You know, like there's no reason why you can't get eight hours of sleep right now. So seven hours of sleep, I want you to appreciate is that you're barely surviving as a human being. You are like, you suck if you're getting less than seven hours of sleep. Now, let me just say, I appreciate that some of us are sick and some of us are caregivers and some of us have little children and some of us have babies, but right now we can do better on our sleep. So let's develop that habit. Your goal is eight, just eight. And that means you may have to get into bed a half hour early. You can do this. You know, what we've done is when we we rebuilt the site in our on our platform, you know, last September, we created a two-week on-ramp program. We'll train you how to mobilize and take care of your tissues and make yourself feel better. So right now, we have been on a me- mission for 10 years to get people to become combat medics, to have a basic understanding of how to help their pain and make themselves feel better. And right now on our site, if you go to the readystate.com, we've got free intro for two weeks. You have access to the whole thing for two weeks, but we'll also train you for two weeks. So cancel after two weeks. I don't care. But right now, learn how to take care of yourself. Learn how to do some basic maintenance and then, you know, go from there. And I think that's really simple. You know, control what you control and let's plan on rebuilding a better society, knowing your neighbor's names, you know, Everyone's cooking at home, which is amazing. I mean, you guys in the UK, it's a little bit tricky because you probably can't cook Indian food as well as you'd like. But um, 
you know, but uh, you can't eat all the <laughs> chips and you can't fry chips at home. But, um, you know, the idea is right now there's a real opportunity for us to, to get better at the things because we're not distracted by all the other rest of the world. Yeah. No, well said. Well said. I completely agree. And lastly, Kelly, just with most of the guests I have on, I do a quick fire round. All so, right, here we go. If you're all right, yeah. The, the disclaimer I always give, if you say something that could potentially um, <laughs> end your professional career, we can always edit out, but I haven't had to do that just yet. In yeah, well, here we go. You're talking, you're talking to the Yank. Here we go. <laughs> So um, first one's, well, quite easy. So what is your personal best for the following lifts, bench, squat, and deadlift? Ooh, it's a good one. I benched 395. I floor pressed 395. Okay. Um, I deadlifted uh, 600 recently. And my best squat ever was uh, I was at Louis Simmons Gym at Westside, and I, and I did a box squat to five with 525. They're impressive numbers. Well, um, they're not really they're not really impressive numbers. I was squatting with the women that day and I was the weakest woman there. I'm really not very good athlete. <laughs> I'm an I'm an aerobic athlete. Those are my peak numbers. You know, and now I'm forty seven and I just realized I'm strong enough to do whatever I want. And what is the worst advice you hear being given in your industry? Um sometimes just do more work. You know, some, uh, so two things. One is that all work is even, so equal. So if you come in and just do 10,000 burpees, I guarantee you you're going to leave a, a worse athlete. So the fine line of, hey, you should have some decent work capacity, but mm-hmm. balance with, hey, you may be making yourself a slower, lower power athlete. And, you know, all of the best athletes in the world I knew were explosive and springy. So let's not ever give up that superpower. And secondarily, we have made food crazy and that uh, we've made f- athletes fear vegetables and fruits and carbohydrate. And we should not, not be doing that. You know, stop eating processed foods, start upping your fat, right? Do the good things. But the banana is not going to make you, di- make you diabetic. Okay. Fair. Um, the most impressive athletes you've worked with and why? Ooh. Uh, whew, man, I'll tell you what, Jordan St. Pierre, uh, is a good friend. He's a fighter and he's yeah, one no, he's, of, he's a freak. He's, um, <laughs> and his attitude around growth is that he is an open cup, an empty cup all the time. Show me what you know. How does this work? Like, I'll try it. You know, like he, he, I've never met someone so committed to being better. And then currently there's a woman I'm working with named Kate Courtney. Okay. who is the reigning uh, or last year was the uh, world champ world champion mountain biker and then this last year she won the world cup in mountain biking she was going to be our olympian but i've never met a 23 year old who is more sophisticated open training she has more runway ahead of her than and more potential than i've and any athlete i've ever met good stuff yeah mountain biking's no joke i've took it up in the last 6 months no. it's, <laughs> And unfortunately, that is where this podcast ends. There were some technical issues there, so we couldn't continue it, unfortunately. But I think there's more than enough in there for you to hopefully enjoy and get a few little bits of information that are worthwhile. 
and I want to thank Kelly for coming on. Um, very informative guest, and to be honest, he's one of the best to do it in his industry. So if anyone's interested in learning more about him, go onto his website, The Ready State, or just simply Google Kelly Start, and you will um, get all the information you need. Anyway, thank you for listening. Um, your support is absolutely crucial to this podcast being deemed relevant enough for me to keep doing it. So if you want to keep supporting, please do. If you want to become a patron, by the way, um, I leave links below all my podcasts. It's as little as 96 cents a month. But, you know, if a lot of people do that, it goes a long way in making sure that I don't have to pay for subscriptions, programs, microphones, equipment, or even guests. So um, all your support's greatly appreciated. And, yeah, stay safe during these testing times. We'll get through it. Keep the faith. Bye-bye.